Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The biggest story of the week was undoubtedly the public testimony that Michael Cohen was giving before Congress. These congressional hearings are quickly becoming must-watch TV. If you think back to the Facebook testimony, the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, and now this, there's so many fireworks that come out of them. Michael Cohen was testifying about all his dealings with the president and some of the huge moments he called the president a racist. He called him a con man. He called him a cheat. He accused the president of having knowledge and directing the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. Uh, He also said that the president knew there was going to be a big WikiLeaks dump of all those DNC emails and that he also knew about conversations about the Trump Tower Moscow project well into the 2016 campaign. Republicans, for their part, were trying to paint Michael Cohen as his own con man. He was a cheat. He's a liar also, just trying to get back at the president. There was tons of fireworks. We spoke to Ginger Gibson. She's a political reporter for Reuters. She was in the room for the testimony. She helps us break down all the highlights. And we started off by talking about how tense the vibe was during that testimony. If you think it was hours and hours, imagine doing the whole thing on a tiny chair in the corner of the room. It was felt like forever. (laughs) There was at times tense vibe. The vibe at other times was laughter. I mean, Michael Cohen made jokes, but there was surely moments in which he delivered some really damning information about President Trump and some moments when Republicans got really heated trying to undermine his credibility. For all of the testimony that we did get, there was plenty of smoke, but no gun, really. There was a lot of stuff that could lead to more investigations. He did also say that there was this possible other investigation that we don't necessarily know about yet. That's all going to be pretty interesting to see what rolls out of there. But he started off very strong. He called the president a racist, a con man, a cheat. I am ashamed that I chose to take part in concealing Mr. Trump's illicit acts rather than listening to my own conscience. I am ashamed because I know what Mr. Trump is. He is a racist, he is a con man, and he is a cheat. That was right at the opening statements, so he started off very strong. He came out not really uh, holding back any punches. He was quite damning of the president, as you played in that clip, called him a racist, and then went on later in the testimony to describe exact conversations he had with the president in which he said the president revealed himself to have a very low opinion of African-Americans, to think that they were all stupid, to insult people who were minorities and of color. It was not something that was that, was, that he was holding back at, at any point. What was the biggest takeaway for you. I think the biggest takeaway was his detailing of the president's tax issues, that the president had maybe misrepresented the value of things in his taxes, and that the president was aware that he was at risk of an audit if his taxes became public. We have spent more than two years now speculating about why the president won't release his income taxes. And this was a real insight. It's because public eyes make him nervous about scrutiny over what's in them. There was all sorts of weird stuff that happened that he said that the uh, president inflated his assets when it served his purposes or deflated his assets to reduce real estate taxes. It was also he can really play the game on that. And one of the funny things that came up, Michael Cohen said that 
the president even directed him to find a straw bidder to purchase a portrait of him because he wanted that to be the highest priced portrait that sold that afternoon. So, I mean, one of the funnier moments of that, but just how the president would play with his assets to his benefit, really. He detailed what it was like trying to be a fixer, the guy who inflated costs, the guy who made sure that the at least appearance that the president was very wealthy. I thought another interesting moment was when he had an exchange about whether or not the president had explicitly asked him to lie to Congress. And he said, well, the president speaks in code and I've been with him a decade and I know the code. And that was an interesting moment where he was sort of repeating word for word things the president had told him in a tone in a way that I think those of us who listen to him are familiar. Yeah. And that's a a really important distinction, too, because there was that BuzzFeed news report that came out that said the president specifically told him to lie to Congress. And Michael Cohen almost defended him in that moment. Uh, I mean, not completely, but he kind of, you know, he said he never said that stuff specifically. It was these codes. And And that's why the special counsel disputed that account, because he didn't necessarily say the words. And I think that it was interesting, the number of sort of online internet conspiracy theories that Michael Cohen shot down. There is no Russia tape. There is no illicit tape of the president and Melania in an elevator. He doesn't have a love child. He never defaulted on child support. He never did drugs. All of these things. Cohen was like, no, 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 no. None of that happened. So that is an interesting piece too. If the internet speculators were looking for confirmation of those things instead from a guy willing to say some pretty damning things saying that that those were not true. Let's take a step back real quick and and talk about the Republicans throughout this hearing. They were painting Michael Cohen as uh, his own con man, you know, his own lie. He was he was a liar. They were berating him every single time they went up. They were telling him, hey, you're just out for a book deal. You want to make money. But then again, he does do this. He did defend the president a couple times. Obviously, they hit a lot of times about him lying to Congress beforehand. But what was your sense? What did, what, did he seem like he was being truthful this time? Uh, his credibility is at issue throughout this whole thing. He did seem to be contrite to acknowledge he had made mistakes. He gave a very convincing argument, I think, that he had erred and he was trying to rectify some of his personal failings. There is going to be a lot of Republicans saying that if the guy lied once, why should we believe him? Now, at one point, we saw Representative Meadows say, you know, I don't believe any jury would believe this guy, which is interesting when you sort of like move it over to the idea of a court of law. Criminal associates testify about other criminal associates all the time. Sometimes juries believe them and sometimes they don't. This was someone who maybe got closer to the president than anyone who wasn't related to him and giving some pretty damning accounts of his time with the president. Are you saying that all the reports that you were paid in some estimates over $4 million, to have access and understanding of the Trump administration. You're saying that all of that was just paid to you just because you're a nice guy. Well, I am a nice guy, but more importantly... Oh, yeah, I would every, beg to differ. The record contract. reflects that you're not a nice Sir, guy. Each- you know, for all the stuff that Michael Cohen has done, good and bad, I mean, he was taking it from everybody when it was their turn to come up. That's right. I mean, and you, what you couldn't hear in that exchange in the recording that we could hear in the room was a chuckle. That was kind of a laugh. People said, oh, ha ha ha. Nice guy. I think that Cohen was trying repeatedly to deflect some of that by saying either I'm really sorry or like 
making a joke sometimes when it got really heated, but it was really a trying of his credibility. And we're really going to have to find out in the next days, weeks, months, year, whether or not the American people believe the things he had to say. One of the other few things that were really big was that Michael Cohen basically said that the president knew that the DNC email dumps were coming, that Roger Stone called him and they were on speakerphone and they talked about WikiLeaks. Mr. Stone told Mr. Trump that he had just gotten off the phone with Julian Assange and that Mr. Assange told Mr. Stone that within a couple of days, there would be a massive dump of emails that would damage Hillary Clinton's campaign. Mr. Trump responded by stating to the effect, wouldn't that be great? This is one of the more damning pieces that Michael Cohen testified about the president. Talking about that that phone call, I think we're going to hear a lot more about this, especially since Roger Stone has been charged and, and is presumably going to stand trial at some point for some of his statements regarding WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. Roger Stone came out right afterwards and said that was not true. He had never had a conversation with Julian Assange. This is going to be one of those situations about which, which one of these guys that don't have the best credibility do you believe? And Cohen's going to have the benefit of being someone who says, look, I'm admitting what I've done is wrong and I'm apologizing in, in saying that. The hush money was also a big thing, basically saying the president directed the whole thing. Is that his signature? That is Donald Trump's signature. So let me make sure I understand. Donald Trump wrote you a check out of his personal account while he was serving as president of the United States of America to reimburse you for hush money payments to Ms. Clifford. Is that what you are telling the American people today? Yes, Mr. Chairman. He brought a $35,000 check signed by Donald Trump on August 1st to this was his evidence saying that the president was in on it the whole time. And I think that one of the keys here, this piece of a puzzle, a bigger puzzle that the House Oversight is trying to put together is that in May of 2018, President Trump filed ethics disclosures he's required by law to file that disclosed paying those payments back. And that in June of the prior year, when he had filed those same filings, it did not include that he owed Michael Cohen this money. And for that reason, the committee is likely to argue that President Trump filed false reports, that here they have a check of him paying Michael Cohen back. And yet, despite that, he was filing reports that said he didn't owe Michael Cohen any money. That's something that the committee was really sort of pulling at and I think is going to keep pulling at going forward. Michael Cohen also implicated the president's family in knowing things that were going around with the Trump Tower in Moscow. He said that his son basically told him, hey, the meeting's all set up. And, you know, he said that the president would constantly say that he's not capable of setting these types of meetings without talking to other people and that everything was run by President Trump. Yeah, there was some angry tweets from Don Jr., Donald Trump's son, probably because Michael Cohen testified that the president thought that Don Jr. had no judgment and that he was not to be trusted with important business decisions. Cohen was saying that in an effort to say, look, Don Jr. would have never set up a meeting with anyone, Russian or otherwise, without writing it past his dad. It was a little bit of insight into the dynamic of that family, which we don't see a lot because there aren't a lot of people who get to see that dynamic who are willing to, to speak publicly about it. For a long time now, everybody has always referred to Michael Cohen as the president's former attorney and longtime fixer. That was one of the things that always stuck to me. It's, you know, where are all the secrets? What's going on? What did he have to do to the president? There was actually a moment where Michael Cohen said that he uh, responded to over 500 different times where the president asked him to handle something. 
How many times did Mr. Trump ask you to threaten an individual or entity on his behalf? Quite a few times. 50 times? More. 100 times? More. 200 times? More. 500 times? Probably. Over the, over the 10 years? Over the 10 years, he sure. asked you... And when you say threaten, I'm talking with litigation or um, an argument with... Um, Intimidation. A, a, a nasty reporter that has, is writing an article... This happened over the course of a decade. These are two men that knew each other for a long time. Obviously, they knew they know a lot of each other's secrets. And the question is now, what do we do with all this testimony now? A lot of people are saying the Democrats are going to use a lot of this stuff for basis of a possible impeachment, although nobody signaled, you know, Nancy Pelosi hasn't signaled that any of that's going to be coming. Republicans are obviously just attacking constantly the credibility of Michael Cohen, but not defending the president on the substance of what's being said. So in the end, what do we do with all this information we have now? Well, I think regardless of what the long term road has ahead, we are a long way away from impeachment proceedings in the House. House Democrats have said privately that they are not super eager to try to impeach the president, that they really need a smoking gun. Impeachment is a political process. It is not a criminal process. You need overwhelming national support to do it. And so that's going to mean that it's very difficult. I think that we're going to see Congress trying to digest this testimony, compare it to other statements from other people who have testified before Congress to see how it jives with other things that have been said. Looking, we saw a lot of members asking Cohen, where would I find that document? Who else could testify to this, clearly signaling this is just the beginning and, and not even close to the end of an investigatory process. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for being in the room there for Michael Cohen's testimony and reporting back to us. Happy to, to give you all the scoops. One of the fun stories we covered during the week were how emoji are showing up more and more as evidence in court. The problem is that not everybody can always agree on what the emoji actually mean. We spoke to Dami Lee. She's a reporter at The Verge for more on emoji in court. So 30% of all the cases that had emoji out of like all the emoji tracked from 2004 to 2019, 30% of those cases all appeared in 2018. So, you know, these emoji are showing up exponentially. And the first case of it was an emoticon in 2004. And as we head towards, you know, present day, we're seeing more emoji instead of emoticon. And that's happening because, you know, people are communicating with each other more, whether it's over text message or Instagram DMs, any kind of communication that's happening, there's just a lot more emoji showing up and it's happening across like all types of legal cases. So it most frequently happens in sexual harassment cases, but it can also show up in contract cases. There was a case in Israel where a couple was sued for not following through on a deal they had with a landlord. They made it appear like they were going to sign on an apartment and they sent a bunch of these enthusiastic emojis like ranging from a chipmunk to a champagne bottle and a comet. And the landlord took this enthusiasm to mean that they were going to sign the lease. And then when they ended up dropping out and stopped responding to the landlord, the landlord said they acted on bad faith and they were actually charged. They sent an emoji back with a champagne bottle. Okay, maybe that one means a celebration. Mm -hmm. A squirrel and a comet. (laughs) <laughs> a little more hard, a little harder to decipher. What does that really mean? So, uh, yeah, in a casual text, you can say, hey, somebody's excited about this. Yeah, let's go for it. 
But for the courts to have to kind of decide the intent behind that, what was the context of all of that, that could get into some murky territory. There's a Uh uh, University of uh, Santa Clara law professor, his name is Eric Goldman, who's been tracking a lot of these. And as you said, you know, it started in 2004 with the emoticons, and you can even see the trajectory of how it changed in about 2014, 2015, there was that big shift where people weren't using emoticons so much Uh anymore, but the emojis had taken prominence there. Give us a few more examples of how these emojis are are playing out in some court cases. There was one in the Bay Area after a guy got arrested in a prostitution sting. It's interesting because none of these cases that are are tracked didn't really hinge on you know the interpretation right. of a particular emoji, but it was rather that the emoji were providing like evidentiary support. So in the Bay Area case, it was a case about sex trafficking, and the defendant was sending these Instagram DMs to a victim and sending her messages like, is you down for the crown? And there was a crown emoji, <laughs> and they brought in an expert to testify that he's basically asking her if she will accept him as his pimp, and the crown symbolizes the pimp is the king. And what's interesting about this case is that the expert that was called in here, he's not an emoji expert, but he's an expert specializing in sex trafficking cases, and they are familiar with the phrases and terms that are used in those communities. So there's not really any person who can be called an emoji expert just because emoji have so many different dialects and they have different meanings depending on who's using them. So in these future cases, even if more emoji are showing up, we're not going to see emoji experts being called in. That's the interesting part of this. As you said, maybe some of these cases haven't necessarily hinged on these emojis being like the thing that's going to turn the case around. But increasingly, as we this becomes the norm in our communication, and they're constantly seizing electronic communications for people to prove whatever they need to in a case, these emojis are going to be just more prevalent in that. And yeah, there is no emoji expert. Uh, as you said, a lot of that has to do with context. A lot of it has, uh-huh. they, there's this kind of notion that they have their own dialects, you know, So in a community in California, a set of emojis could mean something different than it does in New York or whatever. And Mm -hmm. yeah, who do you call, (laughs) you know, to, to do this? There's, there's tons of these things. I I think there was a case where it was, had to do with some sexual harassment and an set of emojis was sent that had horses and then one that looked like a muffin. So the, the lawyer had to say, you know, what is, what does this mean to just one of her colleagues? And they said, Oh, I think it means stud muffin. And then they had to go to court and argue that these texts meant stud muffin. And yes, the guy was being harassed and different things like that. So these interpretations, while they might not be the linchpin right now of a case, but you can just imagine it showing up more and more. Right. And it just gets so complicated because emoji are also depicted differently across different platforms. So if you have an iPhone, you might be seeing a different emoji than an Android user. In addition to that, some of these emoji aren't even being printed in court opinions just because the electronic documents, they can't handle emoji. Yeah, that's so important. I've only had an iPhone as I had a Blackberry back in the day and then iPhone. And that's the only thing I've had. So I don't even know how some of these emojis would show up on an Android. And I know that there are differences, but, you know, a, a, you know, a smirky face on, on my iPhone could mean something totally different on Android. So it's just interesting to, to see how the prevalence of these emojis now and the way we use it in communication is showing up in these court cases. It's so interesting. Dami Lee, reporter at The Verge, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.